tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. As any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church, that's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Well... Let me just begin the show today by saying good grief. We have, I have so much to talk about. It's, listen fast, that's all I can say. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit, they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, Cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And before we launch into the deep end of the pool here, I just wanted to remind you that uh, the U.S. bishops and the heads of the churches in the Holy Land are inviting people today to a day of prayer and uh, and fasting on, on, well, today, Tuesday, the 17th of October. Uh, so we're praying for peace in the Holy Land, and uh, uh, if you haven't started praying and fasting, you can start now. There's no rule against it because we 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 just need peace in this world. All right, that said, let's open the big book on the coffee table. Well, let's start with the gospel, uh, Luke eleven thirty seven to forty one. After Jesus had spoken, a Pharisee invited him to dine at his home. He entered, reclined at the table to eat. The Pharisee was amazed to see that he did not observe the prescribed washing before the meal. Let me describe the prescribed washing. It isn't just the washing. It's the prescribed washing. And I, I, I wonder if, now it might, might mean that Jesus didn't bother to wash his hands, but I, I think that more likely he didn't, didn't do the prescribed. <laughs> the voice might just ask, didn't they have hand sanitizers? No, they didn't. But the... Uh, um, uh, the prescribed washing of hands was very precise. In the months again, my mouse is, you know, my mouse is. I I sound smarter when my mouse is working. But good all right, grief. good grief! There we get more good grief. Let's go to uh, that text, Luke. Uh, um, well, that's not the one, is it? Is it? Yes, it is. All right, let yes, it's Luke. Good. I'm, oh bother! I'm amen. All right, the uh, um, uh, the 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 Pharisees were marveled that he did not first uh, uh, wash uh, before the. Well, the, the text doesn't say the prescribed washing. It says he didn't wash before the banquet or before the meal, uh, um, and they had a very prescribed manner of washing because the Torah says you, you're supposed to wash. And 
you you washed and then you were silent and then you broke bread or cut the bread and distributed it and after you'd eaten the, the bread that had been blessed by the celebrant each meal had its celebrant then then you could talk and the pharisees well you're supposed to wash which jesus doesn't seem to have done maybe he'd washed earlier and that was fine but the pharisees made sure that you saw them washing they'd get up from the table and they would go to a place where there was water and you poured enough water to fill an eggshell and a half, I believe it was, uh, over the palm. You poured half of it over. Uh, you poured half of it. I think half of it over the palm of one hand, uh, and then you made a ball with your fist and washed uh, uh, that fist in it. And then you did the opposite hand. And the, if you go into a, a kosher restaurant, in the corner is a small sink. And, and a cup with two hand, handles, and you, you, it's very well prescribed. That's a good word for it, but it isn't in the text. But the, the, this idea of washing, well, Jesus didn't do it, and they were, they, were, they were shocked. And the thing is, this wasn't prescribed. Washing in general was prescribed. Jesus may have done it with, not in their sight, but the Pharisees wanted to make sure that you, you saw them obeying the law. They were giving you a good example, but sometimes it was a little more than that. Um, and, you know, we use the Pharisee, Christians, we often use the, the word Pharisee in a very inappropriate way. It's, it's, it, we use it as if it were a word meaning hypocrite. And the Pharisees were valiant. They, they, they preserved the faith of the people. Um, and they, they preserved the religious and ethnic identity of the people in a very trying time after the, the exile in Babylon. However, sometimes they could forget that they were performing a service and sort of treat themselves like a kind of inquisition. So Jesus is, is saying, this is, this is uh, you're not understanding that, that this external washing is nothing compared to an internal washing. Uh, you 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 cleanse the outside of the cup and dish. In other words, you're look you're trying to look good, but inside you look bad. So I think that that's an important thing to understand. Uh, <laughs> funny joke that you know it's a shame that Baptists don't recognize Catholics and that Catholics don't recognize uh, uh, Lutherans and and it's it's really a shame that. Most Christians don't recognize one another in a liquor store. I'm just joking. I'm I'm oh, never mind. Homer, you wouldn't. You drink entirely too much. Moving along. <laughs> okay, where's my mouse? It's clearly fled from me. All right, there we go. Let's go to the first reading because this is what the X I really want to grind over the next few days uh, when we're studying the letter of the Romans. I'm not ashamed. Of course, they start with brothers and sisters, which isn't in the text. It sort of cuts the text up into handy snippets of Bible bullets. But remember what I said yesterday, that Paul was creating a legal, a Talmudic uh, um, justification for the, the coming together in one community of Jews and Greeks, of Judeans and Hellenes or Hellenists. Uh, the Hellenes were actual Greeks. Hellenists were Greek wannabes. The culture was Greek. Even Jewish culture was very Greek. So uh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. We talked about the gospel being the, the proclamation of, of God's good news. 
It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, who trusts. Let's remember, that's what that word means. The Jew first, then the Greek. That's what this letter is about. Where in it is revealed, for in it is revealed the righteousness of God from faith to faith. Let's remember the Reverend Know It All definition of righteousness that righteousness, when I hear righteousness, I think, oh, good grief, a righteous soul is coming to bother me and tell me what I'm doing wrong, like a good Pharisee telling me I'm not washing my hands properly. Um, that's not what righteous means. Uh, uh, the one who is righteous. And remember, Paul is a Greek, but he's also a Jew. He's thinking in Greek. He's thinking in Hebrew. The tzaddik, a righteous man. The righteous man will live by faith. This word is a tzaddik. And it's the highest compliment a Jew can pay you is to call you a tzaddik. You're a righteous man, a tzaddik. And a tzaddik, Rabbi Lefkowitz told me, is a man whose good deeds far outweigh his bad deeds. And I said to Rabbi Lefkowitz uh, that God is the ultimate tzaddik because all his deeds are righteous. And he said, no, that's that's anthropomorphizing a man, a God, you can't do it. But at one point, I think he said something like that, and he said, I never said that. So we'll respect Rabbi Lefkowitz, may he rest in peace. So, But the tzaddik is the man whose deeds are righteous. Righteousness, I believe, can be translated as the quality of godliness, that, that, that the nature of God is is perfect righteousness. I, I think Rabbi Lefkowitz would agree to that. Um, the perfect righteousness of God includes mercy and generosity and truth. <laughs> so justice, when we think of justice, is think you're going to get yours, buddy. That's not the, the Hebrew concept of righteousness. The concept of righteousness is a nature that is godly. It includes his truth, but it includes his, his mercy. Uh, and remember, mercy is not Oh, be merciful. Let me get away with it. No, mercy is, is uh, 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 most people don't want mercy. They want permission. Mercy is, is uh, uh, forbearance in the just punishment of a sin if a person repents. Mercy is not permission. So just keep that in mind. Okay, the wrath of God. Well, I thought God was merciful. Well, yes, he is. But if we ask for the wrath of God, well, we get the wrath of God. And Paul goes on um, uh, that God is is obvious in the world. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes of eternal power and divinity have been available to be understood. In other words, there's such a thing as natural law. The commandments, I think, are the expression of natural law. Uh, the, the law can be summed up in what you hate due to no one. And the... the uh, uh, the idea that, well, uh, I, uh, thou shalt not steal, uh, it reflects the nature of God. God is, is the giver of all good gifts. It also reflects the deepest desires of humanity. I, I should not steal because I would not want to be stolen from. When I recognize the, the humanity of a person who is from a different tribe than I am, you know, once upon a time, you're not my tribe, I'm going to kill you. No, we're not tribal anymore. We're not, we shouldn't be tribal. We look at a human being, recognize our mutual humanity, and think just as I would not want to be killed, I should not kill him. But he deserves to be murdered. He deserves to be killed. No, everybody has fallen sin and fallen short of the glory of God. We don't kill because it's an offense against the giver of life who is God, and it is an offense against my own humanity. That, that I don't kill 
except in the defense and self-defense and the defense of the weak. There, there is that exception. Um, and you shouldn't want to kill. <laughs> if your purpose is to kill someone, you're, you're doing it wrong. I, I don't have time to go into that. But uh, that sometimes is the effect of the defense, self-defense, the defense of the weak. But it shouldn't be the purpose. We don't want to extinguish anyone's life, uh, even though it may be necessary in the defense of the weak, as I said. And I just somehow lost my reading. There, I found it again. All right. Uh, I'm kind of digressing on this. Forgive me. Um, but, but you see that, that my humanity... When I see my humanity in another person, then I cease to be tribal, and I, I come into natural law. I don't want to be killed, so I shouldn't kill. I don't want to be cheated on, I shouldn't cheat. That's what Paul is saying here, that the invisible attributes of eternal power and divinity have been available to be understood and perceived in what God has made. As a result, they have no excuse. You know, people who are in terrible sins protest the loudest that they're not doing anything wrong. It's fascinating. In our woke world, there are all these interesting permutations, and people protest at the top of their voice. Well, you're just a you're just a hater because you don't agree with what I believe I should do. And the less secure they feel about their own moral decision, the louder they shout that, well, you're just a hater. I think that's interesting. Their senseless minds were darkened. While claiming to be wise, they became fools. This certainly describes our world. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the likeness of an image of mortal man. You know, we have become so focused on the cult of the body. You know, I, I, I get the biggest kick out of people who, who uh, somehow think but uh, drinking all these bizarre potions and living in a gym, they'll, be, they'll live eternally. They won't. They're going to die. All right, therefore, because they abandoned the, the, the beauty of God and the beauty that God put in human beings, God handed them over to their own uncleanness through the lusts of their hearts for the mutual degradation of their body because they'd exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Paul is not only describing ancient Rome, he's describing the world in which we live. Um, you know, I, I, I cannot continue without talking about the Feast of the Day, St. Ignatius of Antioch. So we're going to go to what I would like to call a professorial pause. That, of course, for us old people, is the theme from Peabody's Improbable History, one of the cartoons in Rocky and Bullwinkle. And believe me, this is sort of Reverend Odal's Improbable History, but I think it's pretty much online. This is something that we're talking about bishops. Today uh, is the feast of St. Ignatius of Loyola and people who say, well, the early <laughs> Ignatius of Loyola, I'm getting my Ignatius wrong, Ignatius of Antioch, who, to whom I have a great devotion even when I get his name confused uh, because of Sister uh, Agnes Cunningham, Mother Mary Agnes, as, as she was called in her youth. And so if anybody who's hearing this uh, uh, it knows Sister Agnes Cunningham, a great teacher of early church uh, literature and authors. Uh, give her a kiss for me. At any rate, she's just a, one of my favorite teachers and one of my dearest, dearest uh, 
inspirations. But moving along, and she taught us all about Ignatius of Antioch. All those people say, well, you know, Constantine started the church, and there wasn't an institutional church until hundreds of years after Christ. Read Ignatius of Antioch. The church in which we live is is recognizable in the writings of Ignatius of Antioch. He talks about bishops, priests, and deacons, and 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 this this universal structure. You don't get the. I think he uses the word. Is it Ignatius who uses the word Catholic, uh, meaning universal? And you get a very clear uh, visions from Saint Irenaeus of Lyon, also uh, a great a great uh, a friend of Sister Agnes, shall we say. They, they weren't contemporary, of course, but he, he taught around 180 AD, and he talked clearly about the primacy of Rome. So the, the church in which we live now, the, 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 the lines of it were clearly established uh, before the year 200. And we see Ignatius, who wrote around, well, when did Ignatius write? He was uh, on his way to be martyred in Rome and begged people not to martyr him, uh, and that would have been, oh, I think he, he uh, uh, let's see, I think he was, okay, he died around 108 A.D. in quite advanced age. He was a, a disciple, I believe, of, of, of St. Peter and St. John. He knew the apostles. And if you read his works, he talks about the role of the bishop, the role of the presbyter, the role of the deacon. Uh, he wrote, I think it's seven letters, wonderful, wonderful stuff to read. Ignatius of Antioch, you can get his stuff online. But I think it's important for us to remember that the Episcopate has changed over the centuries. I think I played uh, old Roman chant for you, which doesn't sound very much like Gregorian chant at all. People say, well, Gregorian chant is the oldest music in the church. It's not. Old Roman chant is centuries older. Gregorian chant was a simplification that was more singable. Uh, um, so so I think it's very important to study the history of the church. And again, I, I want to recommend Mike Aquilina's books. If you want to learn about the early church and the early church authors and fathers, Mike Aquilina, A-Q-U-I-L-A-N-A. -A -A. You can't go wrong with Mike Aquilina. It's wonderfully readable, but it is very scholarly. But you can read it. It's not complicated, and it's certainly not boring. Well, back to the Episcopate. The Episcopate changed greatly around the year, oh, I want to say, well, it changed around 300, uh, three, 350 A.D., because the Roman state really, uh, they, they legalized Christianity, and slowly the Roman state, which had moved to uh, Constantinople, the town of Byzantium, which was transformed into the new capital of the empire, and the emperor just thought, of course, he would be involved in in the uh, in the appointment of bishops and the regulating the church because now it was the Roman Church, and the bishop of Rome was supposed to move to the new Rome, Constantinople. The bishop of Rome said, "I'm not going. I'm staying in Rome," and thus the bishop of Rome maintained the independence of. Of, of the faith. It wasn't a national church. It wasn't an imperial church. It was Roman and Catholic. Um, however, the life of the church for a thousand years after this, at least a thousand years, uh, 15, well, almost 1800 years, uh, was uh, um, a battle between the emperor and the bishop of Rome. 
the, the increasingly the nobility of, of the Roman Empire and the nobility of Europe, well, they were appointed bishops. And so this is why we have all these kind of lordly titles and lordly customs with the episcopate. It, it, it was a gradual change. Uh, the, the, the third sons of the nobility <laughs> uh, would be sent to the church. And uh, we see this very commonly. And it's amazing to me how many good and holy bishops we had in, for instance, the Middle Ages because so many of the governing bodies of, of, of Europe and of, of, the, of the Byzantine Empire saw the church as sort of an extension of the government. Um, this may shock you, but the, 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 there were three governing bodies in Europe which had a veto power over the election of the Pope as late as 1900. The election of Pius X, a saint, was the result of the veto of the Austrian emperor. The emperor of Austria, the president of France, and the king of Spain all had veto power over the election of a pope until into the 20th century. It's unbelievable. Pius X said that's over. But until then, I mean, what's happening in the church now, that the church is really becoming unimportant. And I, I say that frankly. The church is becoming unimportant to a great part of the population of Europe and the European countries. By them, I include North America, which was settled by Europeans, and Australia, parts of, uh, parts of uh, different places where Europeans settled. Uh, the European heritage of the church is, is in tatters. And there's lots of reasons that one can go into, into that, but, and which I don't want to do now. But in a way, I think what's happening is a simplification of the church, that in the first centuries of the church, the, the, the bishop was seen as the head pastor of a rather small community of people. And I think that may happen again. Um, I, I, I'm sure I've shared this with you. I don't know if I may have even shared it with you in this harangue. But until 850 A.D., that's almost the first millennium of Christianity, if you were a bishop, you would never be pope. Let me say that again. Until 850 A.D., with the papacy of Marinus I, if you were a bishop, you would never be pope. A bishop was considered married to his diocese, and a change of diocese would be tantamount to infidelity. And they ordained a bishop of Rome. Uh, a bishop, Rome was the only diocese that had auxiliary bishops to speak of at the time. They ordained a, a suburban bishop. They had extra bishops around so they wouldn't, I think, so they wouldn't lose the uh, apostolic succession. It was a guarantee that you would have enough bishops to ordain uh, the bishop of Rome. But bishops of Rome were taken from the deacons and sometimes the priests, the presbyters of Rome. Sometimes lay people were elected bishop of Rome and they were quickly ordained. Uh, but you never picked a bishop from another diocese until this fellow Marinus, the bishop of Cairo, became, was elected bishop of Rome. And it was a great scandal. But up until the beginning of the 20th century, it was still common to elect, for instance, a deacon of the Church of Rome. Uh, and I think it, it, it behooves us. That's a fancy word for meaning we ought to study the history of these things because we somehow look at the 
the institutions that we have today and think, well, these were established by Jesus. The papacy was, but the expression of what the papacy is, the expression of the episcopate, these things change over history. And I think it's very important to understand this history, to understand the essence of these institutions. The bishop is a a father to, to his family. And we tend to think of it as sort of an international government. And the church is a very local thing. Uh, it's just some thoughts on this, on the Feast of Ignatius of Antioch. Read Ignatius of Antioch. If you want to see what the, the episcopate was like in the first century, Ignatius of Antioch is your go-to guy. I've talked too long, and we're going to take a break. We'll come back with some letters. Oh, by the way, our phone number, our toll-free line, is 888-914-9149. And don't forget, it is sponsored by the Catholic Order of Foresters. Looking for a new job? How about one that offers you opportunities for spiritual, social, and charitable growth? Our sponsor, the Catholic Order of Foresters, is hiring new agents today. Visit relevantradio.com slash forester. An Illinois Life Insurance Society not available in all states. Midnight oil. <laughs> Interesting. I usually think of the fat being in the fire, but that's different. Oh, by the way, um, the the um, on Monday, the sixteenth, uh, we we started, which was yesterday, of course. We started our annual Holy Souls Novena sign up. You can still sign up, the Holy Souls Novena and. Uh, you can put 20 names in that you're asking us to pray for, and we'd ask you to join us in prayer for the, the souls in purgatory. It is, oh, it's, uh, I have met so many people who've died and lived to tell about who talk about they can hear the prayers of of everyone. They can hear people praying for them. I have just heard so many stories about that, uh, and it's a beautiful thing. So sign up for the Holy Souls Novena. Day late is better, well, it's better than not at all. You can you can pray the novena twice one day. All right, let us now go to, yes, exactly, letters. Um, Let's see here. Uh, the I got a letter here that I've been meaning to read from for ages and ages. This is from someone who is Greek. Buzz is his first name. Doesn't sound Greek. Uh, uh, the, the uh, let's see here. Uh, oh, uh, fellow father, I work for a hospice agency. It's occasionally difficult to get a Catholic priest in time for a patient to receive the sacrament of the sick. We have a chaplain that works for our agency who is an ordained Greek Orthodox priest. Can he hear Catholic patients' confession and perform the anointing? Is this valid? I believe it is. Uh, it's in an emergency. Of, for instance, someone who has been laicized and left the priesthood, he is obliged to hear someone's confession and anoint them if he is in a hospital situation. In an emergency, not in general, but in an emergency when there is no Catholic priest available. So I would certainly think a, a Greek Orthodox priest, we regard them as completely valid in their ordination. And the Eucharist as they consecrate is absolutely valid. And so my assumption is that the 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 hearing of the confession uh, and performing the anointing for a, a Greek Orthodox priest who is 
available would would certainly be right. Now, if I am wrong and there's a much better uh, canonist than I am, I would like to know. But, uh, Buzz, I think that's absolutely uh, great that this person would would be so generous as to do that. Let's see here. Now, here's another one. Um, uh, this is uh, my grandmother was baptized in a Christian church, but it's not Catholic, and she will not go to church. What can I do to help change her mind? Probably nothing, but, um, you know, invite her. You know, don't tell her you should be going to church, but invite her. Remember a, a fellow who was, uh, had a big comedy show, he said that uh, people would ask him, why don't you go to church? And he had lots of good reasons. Um, and um, then someone invited him to go to church, and he said, at that point, I've been going to church ever since. You know, invite her. Would you like, Graham, you want to come to church with me today? No, I don't want to. Well, keep doing it. Maybe somebody should say, okay, quit bugging me. You know, us old folks, we can get kind of stubborn. But she was baptized in a Christian church, and most churches do not impose the the Sunday obligation. We do, and I think we should keep imposing, and I use that word, Sunday obligation, uh, because uh, sometimes you don't feel like it. You still do it. Love is what you do when you don't feel like it, really. So, uh, but she's not under the same moral constraint to participate in a congregation. Uh, just um, offer to pray with her, uh, offer to read Bible with her. Just offer. Don't don't say, uh, you got to do this, Grandma. Say, hey, would you like me to do this for you, Graham? You know, invite. Don't command, especially your grandmother. All right, let's see. Where did I put? What time is it? I think I got room for one more letter if I oh I got a lot of phone calls I don't want to overdo this oh well let's go I got a a a, a pretty and I think it's a rather interesting uh, word of the day so let's go to the the word of the day uh, but let's go to a break and we'll come back with the word of the day oh the phone number the Catholic Foresters phone number is eight 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 nine one four nine one four nine that's eight 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 nine one four nine one four nine we will do our best listen fast. Today, we'd like to thank Steve, who is listening in Wisconsin, for donating his 1981 Kawasaki motorcycle. You can join thousands of other listeners in donating old vehicles, trucks, boats, and RVs by visiting relevantradio.com slash car. That's relevantradio.com slash car. Listen, I've traveled every road in this here land. I've been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere, man. This song always reminds me of Father Bill Eddy. May he rest in peace. (laughs) He could drive. Oh, gosh. At any rate, moving along, let's go to the word of the day. The word of the day is, of course, gabul. I'm not making this up. It's a Hebrew word, gabul. And it means a boundary stone. Uh, the voice in my head just said he's ordered that in in a, in a in what kind of a, a Croatian restaurant? He's he's part Croatian, so at any rate, yes, Kabul. It means uh, a boundary stone. Now I have a theory that when God mentions something twice in the Bible, you need to pay attention. When God mentions something three times in the Bible, you really need to pay attention. Like when Jesus said. Or the psalm said, and and uh, Jesus quotes it, and Peter quotes it, 
the the stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Calvary, and I'm not going to go into this, was literally a, a stone that the builders rejected. So this is an important verse in Scripture. But when God mentions something five times, I would pay attention. Uh, I, I would pay attention, and, and this will relate to our first call when we get to phone calls. Gabul. We, we find that—let me read uh, uh, Deuteronomy 19.14. You must not move your neighbor's boundary marker, which was set up by your ancestors. And then Deuteronomy 27.17, cursed is he who moves the neighbor's boundary stone. And let all the people say amen. And Job, the 24th verse, the second chapter, men move boundary stones. They pasture stolen flocks. And then Proverbs 23.10 do not move an ancient boundary stone or encroach on the fields of the fatherless. Um, that's important. Five times. I think this is the only thing mentioned five times in the Holy Scriptures, certainly that I know of. Maybe I'm wrong. But uh, uh, this, this proverb. Now, what does it mean? Well, I am big into thinking that the Scripture is not just full of rules. It's full of principles. So what principle is being being enunciated here, when you move an ancestor's boundary stone, you can never get it back quite in the right place. And there's a reason it's there. All right, let us look at the world in which we are living. Well, everybody is shacking up. You know, it's what you do now. It's not a big deal. Oh, yes, it is a very big deal. It is a boundary stone that, that you may go this far and no farther. Um, you know, people say, well, in the ancient world they did. Yeah, they did, but not among the Jews. Marriage was held very sacred. And, you know, the problem with, for instance, shacking up together is if you don't respect the vows of matrimony, uh, it's just a piece of paper. No, it's much more than a piece of paper. It's a legal contract, and for Catholics it's a covenant Um that if you don't respect this boundary before marriage, you're not going to respect it after. My mother, who was one of the kindest women I've ever known, and I would, you know, uh, uh, people would come up to me years after she died, 30 years after she died. I had people coming up to me saying, oh, your mother saved my life. She was my fourth grade teacher. She was that kind of woman. And this is a little personal. You'll forgive me. But she said she cried herself to sleep every night for the first two years of her marriage. <sighs> she had a mother-in-law who, because of the Depression, had to move in with them, and this mother-in-law ruled the roost. And uh, she just pretended my mother didn't exist. Uh, my, my grandmother was a very stressed woman. And uh, finally, God in his mercy uh, caused her to have to go take care of some other relatives, so she moved out. It preserved the marriage. But my mother said, if divorce had been easy, your father and I would have divorced in the first two years of marriage. But it was not easy. And they had a long and joyful, happy marriage that produced seven children, of whom I am the seventh. And I often say, because of my parents' bravery, I exist, and because of their fidelity. But divorce was not an option. Now we've moved the ancestor's boundary stone. Yeah, you can get divorced. It's easy. We've moved the ancestor's boundary stone, and we'll never get it back in the right place. There are thousands of moral situations that we think aren't important, but they will turn out to be very important. You know, that uh, don't move an ancestor's boundary stone. It's there for a reason. You're not inflexible. You're not intolerant. But on the other hand, you don't rewrite the rules. 
of human nature because human nature is something that God made and God sustains. All right, that said, what, what do we do now, dear voice in my head? The phone is ringing. On the phone. Jimmy from Atlanta, what can I do for you? Hi, Father. How you doing? I'm um, doing all right. All right. So uh, every time I bring up, start to evangelize somebody at work about the Catholic faith, they come back with, oh, uh, that's not possible. You see, the Bible can't be, cannot be the basis for all what you're saying, because after all, it was written by men with different interpretations, and everybody just putting in their own two cents, and, well, that just can't be the basis. He's absolutely correct that that the Bible is only useful in the context of the church. He's not going to well, like that either. Uh, the, well, the Bible itself says that the church is the pillar and foundation, that we have an institution that's existed for 2,000 years that remembers what Jesus meant by this. We have literature that goes back. Ignatius of Antioch is, is a person who heard the gospel from people who'd heard it from Jesus. So, yeah, the Bible alone doesn't work very well. But when you have the Bible in line with 2,000 years of consistent teaching, this is a pretty good record of human history. And of course, the Bible is human. It was... We believe it's written by the Holy Spirit through the instrumentality of human beings. And it is the record not of—these are not the sayings of God. This is the history of the relationship between God and humanity over the course of a couple thousand years. And there's a huge amount of wisdom in it and a huge amount of truth. And it also points out the things that—for the instance, Abraham, he did a lot of stupid stuff. But God still loved him. This is the Bible is the record of the relationship of God with human beings over the course of a couple thousand years. And in the church, we add a couple thousand years of it. This is 4,000 years of research. And that you can that is very useful. So if you interpret the Bible on your own without the context of the history and the history of the church, um, well, the church is just made of men, too. Yeah, it's made out of men, and the Holy Spirit has been faithful to the church. You study history, and uh, 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 you're much more aware of, of God being faithful to a church that has often been led by men who are sinful and weak like me. Uh, but the history is there nonetheless. Um, if he really wants to know about the, the scriptures have him. I really think that William Crocker's book, The Triumph, uh, and the I think it's The Triumph and the Glory of the Catholic Church. It, it's uh, Triumph. Uh, William Crocker's book, Triumph. Have him read that. If he's serious about it, he will be amazed at how God has been faithful to the church. So, yeah, the, the Bible's written by human beings, and the Holy Spirit wrote through them. It's a record of our relationship with God that goes back took 2,000 years before Christ. And if he's not interested in that, he's not interested in in reasonable discussion. Does that help? Have him listen to this clip. Yes, yes, and it he, does help. And he can call in. So there you go. God bless you, Jimmy, and thanks for calling in. Let's go to Mike from Houston, Texas. What can I do for you, Mike? Good afternoon, Father, and thanks for what you do. Oh, I, I enjoy doing it. <laughs> thanks for what you do. God bless. Well, what can I do for you, Mike? Uh, the third luminous mystery says the proclamation of the kingdom, yes. I believe. Yes, yes, 
Would you please explain that to me? I, I've been meditating on it, not knowing what I'm meditating on, really. Well, I, I, you have pressed a button on my favorite topic, the kingdom of God. And I often point out, like twice a day <laughs> and almost every show, that the word kingdom in Greek is basilia. And it doesn't mean what we mean by kingdom. When we say kingdom, we mean a political system and a geographical territory. The word basilea really means the nature of the king. You inherited kingliness. You inherited royalness. And Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God. He was saying, you've all got it wrong what God is like. God is like a man who finds a treasure in a field and goes and sells everything he has and buys the field. In other words, you're the treasure. God is the man. Uh, the kingdom of God is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. The, the, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he's talking about God's royal nature. I When I see that word in the scriptures, I don't translate it kingdom. I translate it God's royal nature. So Jesus proclaimed what God was really like and ultimately said, you want to know what God is like? Look at me, a, 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 day, a day laborer who's going to die on a cross. That's what God is like. He's not like some king in a palace. He's not like some uh, great wizard. He's He's... He's like me. I'm the very image of God. And there was this, there's a big stone uh, on the Lake of Galilee, which is now in the little chapel. It's called the Mensa Domini, the table of the Lord. And I theorized that it was a place where Jesus went and he sat on this rock and people would come and listen to him and ask him to pray for their sick. And that's the place where he proclaimed what God was really like and the ultimate place uh, Jesus said uh, at the Last Supper, I will not drink the fruit of the vine until I drink it new with you in the kingdom. Well, that means when he came back or in heaven, he'd drink wine with him. No. The next place that Jesus drank the fruit of the vine, he drank bitter wine mixed with water on the cross. So if Jesus said, I will not drink the fruit of the vine again until I drink it new with you in the kingdom, the cross is the kingdom of God. The cross is God's royal nature. That's how much God loves you. That's the kingdom, the cross. So Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom. He came to tell us what God was really like instead of our illusions about him. Does that help? Uh, yes, Father. Did he proclaim it, proclaim the kingdom over a period of time? Over three years. Time? Three years. In his whole life, he proclaimed mm -hmm. the kingdom. When God, what we believe among, about, about God, when he appeared among us, he appeared first as a baby, then he grew up and became a guy who was a day laborer, a construction worker. He wasn't a theologian. He wasn't a clergyman. He worked at, at construction. The, the, he's called a tecton, uh, which in Greek means a builder. Uh, he, he, he would go with, with his stepfather, Joseph, across the hill and say to the guys building Sipporah, a big Greek city, you got any work today, boss? That's what God is like. God is like a day laborer. God is like uh, um, a person who pours out his blood for the love of his brothers. You see, that's the kingdom. Does that help a little? Yeah, yes. It wasn't one particular uh, instant like the transfiguration. No, it was. It was his whole life. You know, Jesus pounded on. You know, uh, you know, learning carpentry and learning his his building trade. The the sound he heard all day long from his childhood on was the sound of hammer on nails. What was the last thing he heard in his in his uh, in his mortal body before his resurrection, as they pounded the nails uh, into the cross? You know, think of that. 
He pound, the sound of hammer on nails prefigured the cross. His whole life was a proclamation of what God was like. But in those three years that he taught, he taught in parables and in Proverbs. This is what God is like. So hope that helps, uh, Mike. I, I'm honored that you listen and call in. Let's go to Laura, who's also from Houston. What can I do for you, Laura? Hi. Mine has to do with the second commandment, you shall not make idols. Mm-hmm. How can I explain to a friend that the worshiping or any reverence to idols, that it degrades a human being? Oh, yeah. to worship an idol. Well, it depends what you mean by an idol. To to it's a superstition to think that a statue can be a god. Now the statues and images of a saint, we Catholics, they're not gods. Our Blessed Mother isn't a goddess, and we don't worship them. I've never known a Catholic who did worship one. But if someone treats a thing as if it were God, that 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 thing, they have a very small god. <laughs> the universe can't contain God. Why would they think? that a statue could. Right. And when I mean, I think I mean like in Hinduism. When, oh. um, you know, people have these idols. Oh, yeah. That That's what they call them. They're not worshiping the idols. They're giving reverence. Yeah, well, you know, I, I don't know that you can say that to Hindus. Uh, the, the, you see, most religions believe that the gods are not immortal, or they're immortal, they don't die, but they're not eternal. Now, I don't know if that's true for Hinduism, but but the idea that that, that a thing can contain a divinity um, is ridiculous. Now, well, isn't the Eucharist ridiculous for Catholics? We believe that, that what looks like a piece of bread contains divinity. Yeah, but it it opens us up to the the infinite. Uh, it's 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 Jesus. The only person who could make that happen would be God himself. We believe Jesus is God himself. But if a craftsman makes a statue, that that statue can't contain God because God is unlimited. Um, you know, I, 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 I would much more talk to them about the beauty of Christ crucified, you know, that we, we believe our God is a humble God and—, and that he loved us so much that he allowed this to happen. That's the tack I would take, that, that, that we worship a God who the universe can't contain, but who came into the universe to show us how much he loved us. That's how I would evangelize a Hindu. Um, they, they, would ju- they, they have a thousand justifications for those images. Uh, Hinduism is a very ancient and complex religion, but I would stress the, the beauty of the cross over, over the idols. Uh, they don't have anything, that, as far as I know, like that. So I hope that helps a little, Laura. God bless and thanks yes, again for thank listening. You so much. All right, let's go to Patalina. Now, Patalina, what can I do for you? You're calling from Merrill, Wisconsin. What can I do for you? Um, I would like to know when Jesus was a baby, he had yellow hair when he grew up. He had brown hair, or did he have yellow hair when he grew up? I he was a baby. I would suspect. I would I would suspect that he had brown hair because he was he was a, a, a Mediterranean Jew. He that that generally that Arabs they, they would have the same uh, genetic makeup in large measure as 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 Lebanese people as Arabs as Egyptians. They generally have brown eyes and brown hair. So I suspect that when Jesus was a kid, he had he had brown hair because that's what most people had back then. 
So, you know, blonde-haired people come from where my people come from, but, you know, I, I had sort of blondish hair when I was a kid. Now it's brown and, and starting to go a little bit white, I think, finally, but who knows. So I hope that helps a little, Potalina. God bless you, and thanks for calling in. Let's go to Yvonne from Manhattan. Are you with us, Yvonne? Yes, I'm listening. I'm so <laughs> involved with you <laughs> listening. Well, well, God bless. Oh, yes. <laughs> Today is my birthday. Tell I'm me, gonna, are I you Puerto Rican? <laughs> I'm, I'm, um, oh, that's funny. My father is all Sicilian. Oh. So he died 1973. No, that's my grand. No, yeah. No, 79 because my grand. And he okay. was in the war. Okay. He was, one, he was one of 10 children. Okay. So, and, and your mom? Was was she also? Oh, and my, yeah, yeah. My mother, or oh, my mother is mixed. Uh, let me see. Uh uh, her her mother was adopted, and she was, I think, from Spain. Yeah. Oh well, that's close because Yvonne <laughs> Yvonne is a very common name with Puerto Ricans. It's it's uh it's delightful. Well, I read in the comment that today is your birthday and you're 81. You sound like you're a teenager. Yeah. Well, Mazel you know Tov. Jesus, <laughs> the mayor, very close to me, and my mother was. Oh my goodness, she was. Strictly, like the mother Mary, she, uh, you know, not words like you said, but she was, we, I well, know you know what I'm saying. Yeah, I do. And it's just, it's just wonderful that you, you keep these people in your prayers, you remember them. And let me say a little prayer for you, Yvonne, on your birth. Lord, I ask you to bless Yvonne and give her the the joy and the strength and, and, and as your scripture says, renew her youth like an eagle's. May Almighty God bless you, Yvonne, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, Yvonne, thanks for calling in and letting us help you celebrate your birthday. God bless you. Let's go to Chris from Wilmington, Delaware. What can I do for you, Chris? Hi, Father. I'm going to make this really quick. <laughs> Good. I was at our I was at our Planned Parenthood in in Wilmington praying yeah. a vigil. You know. Well, anyway, the, I've never heard this before, but the 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 escorts came, were telling us that they have scripture proof in the Old Testament that abortion was okay by God. And they used Exodus 21, verses 22 to, and 23, or actually 22 to 25. And I read it, and I just can't figure out how they can justify abortion. Well, what is, what, oh, there's the, the music. Of course they can't. They take a verse and, and twist it. You know, I don't have time to open up that verse. Maybe we can discuss it tomorrow, but... Yeah, they're, they're, you know, abortion is the murder of a child. And the early church clearly said that we don't kill children. Um, it's, it's, you know, there are lots of things it says in the Old Testament that, that Jesus said, don't do that anymore. 